Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brother, it is good to be back with you another week. I enjoy our times together. Likewise, always. Uh, and we had some really great feedback from the episode on omniscience, and that, that was indeed a, a rich episode. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to pick those attributes of God up. We've got just a couple left um, in a week or two here. We've got a few in between we're going to do. And today, it, I think it's going to be a big one. It, it's a hot topic. It's a touchy issue, um, especially if you like to fight against Scripture. And uh, brother, I'm just going to take my gloves off here at the very beginning, and I'll let you clean up the mess. Um, <laughs> Fortunately, I think we're on the right side. Uh, we're on the same side and the right yeah, side. I think yeah, we're thinking ab- alike. Absolutely. And, I, you know, so today's topic, we're going to talk about feminism. And I just want to say out of, out of the gate, biblical womanhood is the precious daughter of God while feminism is the handmaiden of Satan. Mm. For me, that kind of sums up the difference between biblical womanhood and feminism. Biblical womanhood just kind of encapsulates that which God created that's beautiful, that's wonderful, that he ordained for women to reflect. And feminism is just this ugly twisting of what God ordained and when we twist scripture, it always serves right the purposes of Satan rather than the purposes of God. And that goes right back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, Satan was the one that tempted the woman, and Adam was uh, was condemned for listening to the voice of Eve rather than obeying God in the matter. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, this is a hot topic. It's a hot topic for a lot of reasons, but the heart of the issue is it's a hot topic because people want to rebel against the word of God. It really just comes down to that, I think. Yeah, I agree. And uh, this really is the summary of why the world hates God anyway. I mean, they they hate God because of who he is, but they show their hatred for God by their disdain for his word. And we come across that in just about any topic that we can possibly bring up. And this is certainly no exception. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is an interesting ism, as it were, because the feminist movement, if you kind of go back to the history of it, looking at the 19th century, when, you know, kind of the first wave of it started, it really did not get a lot of attraction until... And our, our brothers, uh, Daryl and Virgil, may, may be aware of this, but it didn't really get a lot of traction until it united with Marxism. Isn't that an interesting thing? Um, and yeah, and, and yeah, Karl Marx, um, obviously atheist, and his two goals in life, one was to dethrone God, and the other one was to destroy capitalism. And I think we have planned on the deck to talk about critical race theory, which uh, all derives from critical theory. But yes, there's a lot of common thinking that, uh, that, that goes into play, especially today. And so, for those who are, you know are kind of thinking, well, I'm not sure the history of feminism is really all that bad. I mean, that's something on you know at the onset we should be aware of that feminism gained its kind of popularity and traction once it united with Marxism, and it did that so that um, it could move forward in a way that it wasn't able to previously. So, behind the feminist movement 
is in fact Marxist ideology, which is in every way antithetical to biblical, you know, Christianity. Yeah, and when we get into critical theory um, in another episode, we'll go deeper into this. But essentially, when we talk about Marxism and critical theory, when I say critical theory, critical theory was brought to us by a guy named Max Horkheimer in 1937. He was part of a group of German philosophers who were very Marxist in their thinking. And they had turned Marxism, which is by its nature an economic philosophy, into one of culture. And so, with critical theory and what it shares with Marxism, is that basically everyone is divided up into two groups, uh, essentially an oppressor and an oppressed group. And um, truth, as we understand it today, is really all a social construct. So there is no objective truth. And a lot of truth is derived from uh, experiences and, and emotions, especially of those of the oppressed. And so when it comes to feminism, yes, that that's true. And so what we see today, we see a lot of rebellion against the quote unquote patriarchy and, and men and how men have um, oppressed women. And we've seen a lot of the ads that have come out uh, this past year from companies that have tried to peddle this kind of uh, feminist uh, ideology, and it has not gone well. Um, but this is um, really the thinking of this age. This is what we're dealing with, um, and it has seeped into the church very clearly. Yeah, and I don't think it's going away because it is, you know, just inexplicably linked with the social justice movement, uh, with the cultural Marxism going on. I mean, they've latched on to that uh, for decades now, and they won't be separated um, and so we're going to have to deal with the social justice issues. We're going to have to deal with critical theory, critical race theory uh, that came from CT intersectionality. This is going to be the battle over the next decades, I think. Um, and eventually it will implode on itself, uh, but I think we have quite a ways to go before that happens. And so what's really interesting about the feminist movement is so they attach themselves to Marxism. So we need to understand that behind that is, is Marxism. Marxist theory. And like you mentioned, basically what the feminist movement did was they they made the shift like current Marxism that we see that I think Vody Bauckham coined the phrase cultural Marxism, right? So we'll use that moving forward because that's what we're talking about. But feminism basically added to the classical division of Marxism, you know, predominantly being the oppressed and oppressor, the classes. They added the issue of gender, right? Gender and also race or really ethnicity um, so that they could gain the traction that they needed. So this is behind you know, what we know as feminism today. And I think it's, you know, the moment you say feminism on or is bad on Twitter or Facebook or any media, you know, instantly it's it, it's like you kicked a hornet's nest and you just get swarmed. Um, uh, and, and even, you know, there's a category now of quote unquote Christian feminism, which is not actually really feminism and it's not really Christian, uh, sort of like Christian science. It's not Christian and it's not science. Um, right. But, but it's an interesting thing. And I think, you know, we want to go through and talk about what biblical womanhood is because feminism, of all the things it can do and it is and that it attacks, what it mostly attacks is the beauty of womanhood. Um, and, and so we really want to dive in and kind of deal with some of those things. 
Yeah, and maybe it uh, might be helpful to take a moment to recognize that not all feminism is, it's not a monolith. Um, so yeah. they don't all necessarily agree with each other. And especially when you talk about Christian feminists, um, they wouldn't necessarily agree with everything that the secular feminists um, would would believe. And even amongst the secular feminists, there's kind of a scale there. So when we define feminism, Nathaniel, why don't you help our audience think through what do we mean by feminism? Yeah, feminism, it, I, and it's really, again, this is interesting. When we talk about feminism, we're talking about a system that attempts to view the world through a perceived feminine lens based on oppressions, how oppressed or how neglected they've been in perceived uh, rights and things like that. And so that's what we're talking about. It, it, it's very close to what social justice, social justicians do just in the feminine realm. So feminism would say, um, my experience isn't being lifted as high as the male experience. And, and so there's an inequality there that needs to be addressed, right? Um, and, and you're right, you have different groups of feminists and they don't all agree, kind of like Baptist churches, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> You've got it, it Baptist on the name of 50 churches and you walk into them and they all teach some slight differences yeah. and things. Um, but it, there are, so, you know, kind of traditionally like four or five types of feminists that you can break those groups down. Um, you've got liberal feminism, which is its kind of own subcategory. You've got Marxist feminism, which really I think that's kind of morphed into cultural Marxist feminism. You've got romantic feminism, and, and we'll try to maybe get to a, a little brief overview of these. And then you've got radical feminism. Uh, and then the fifth one would be, quote unquote, Christian feminism. And like you said earlier, they're all a little different. Um, some of them share general aspects of each other. And then there are areas where they totally disagree. But behind all of them, all of those is an attack against the word of God, against the created order, and against that which was meant to be, um, you know, a beautiful gendered specific role in creation. They all attack that. Yeah, and similar to when we talk about racism, this is not to deny our history of racism. This is not to deny that racism um, exists. We would say that racism exists. We would say the misogyny exists. There are real bigots out there. And I think when we look back at our history, there has been a lot of mistreatment of women, um, of wives uh, from men. And so we don't deny that. Um, that is certainly wrong. Um, but that does not um, nullify what the Bible says is good and right when it's done correctly. And I think as we get deeper into this, we will see that a lot of the abuses um, that gave rise or at least helped give rise to feminism, a lot of the accusations that we continue to see today are really based upon um, an unbiblical understanding of what uh, of what patriarchy is or really what God had designed for both manhood and, and womanhood together. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a good point to make that there are, there are genuine misogynists out there. But then let me also make this statement. I do not know personally, nor have I personally ever heard of a single pastor who would not address that um, as, as a discipline issue if it were to come up in the church, right? Um, yes. And, and so oftentimes... Uh, in order to excuse a system that's just entirely against scripture, people will pull up abuses and say, well, 
see if complementarianism were good, then you wouldn't have any abuse in the church. And and it really, you know, that's an attempt at, you know, a sleight of hand kind of move um, to promote, you know, feminism or whatever it is you're promoting liberal theology. Uh, but it it's not an accurate way to look at those things. Yeah, and if we look at things through a biblical worldview, we understand that all of mankind is afflicted with the depraved nature. We all suffer from sin. And so whenever we're dealing with things that are here in this world in the temporal realm, we understand that men sin and they're going to, and when I say men, I'm talking about men and women together, all of mankind, we're all sinners. And sometimes what is implied by a lot of the feminist attacks is that women would do it better or women wouldn't uh, wouldn't be guilty of the kinds of sins that men are. And in fact, you, you even see that very clearly when you look at secular advertising and whatnot, um, how women are uplifted and, and men are kind of put down. Um, but what we understand from Scripture is that we are all afflicted. We are all sinful. So any kind of system that you put into place is going to be flawed, not because of the system, but because people are sinful. And that's all the more reason why people need to be able to come to Christ and understand God's Word and see God's Word as the baseline, the authority for all truth and how we live these things out. Yeah, absolutely. And brother, with that, why don't you take us to what God's design for woman is just let's just go all the way back to the beginning and walk us through that yeah it's amazing how much uh, the book of genesis really teaches us and especially those first three chapters we know that mankind was created starting in genesis chapter 1 verse 26 when god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the cattle and over all the earth so that is to say that mankind has dominion over all of creation what separates us from the animals is that we are created in the image of god there is no animals that share that distinction Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, we know from the Genesis account that God, after each day, said it was good. He repeats that over and over again. And after all creation is done, he says it is very good. But when we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see the very first time that God says something is not good. And that's the fact that he looks at the man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And at this point, we know that Adam has been created to cultivate the ground. He's been given work to have dominion, and that the woman who would come would end up being a helper. Now, that word helper often gets used in a condescending way, as if the person is inferior, but that is not the case at all. This is just establishing order that the man is the one who leads, and the woman comes behind him and supports him in this activity. And just to prove that the word helper is not, um, not meaning inferior, in the Old Testament, the word helper more often than not refers to God himself. And even in John chapter 14, when Jesus Christ first gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit, he tells his disciples, I will give you another helper in reference to the Holy Spirit. But the fact that it's another helper means that he was the first helper. So we wouldn't say that neither Jesus Christ nor the Holy Spirit are inferior to us. But following this statement from God that it is not good for man to be alone, it goes right into the account where God brings all the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and brings them to Adam so that Adam would name them. And we 
kind of disconnect those two verses thinking that they're talking about completely different things, but they're not because verse 20 goes on to say that for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Mm -hmm. So, Adam went through all of the animals, gave them names, but the point was not to give names, which uh, in some sense, he was exercising dominion, but the point was for him to see that none of them could actually suit, be suitable to him as a helper. And so, that's when God puts him to sleep, creates the woman, and then we have that exclamation from from Adam, where Adam basically looks at Eve and says, now that's what I'm talking about, right? And so, he sees Eve and he gets excited that uh, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. So, from the very beginning, it was created this way that woman would be the helper um, to, to, to man. And that's the way God had created it. You know, a lot of people accuse us saying, well, that's easy for you to say because you're a man. Well, it doesn't matter whether I'm a man or a woman. It doesn't matter who is saying it. The, the scriptures say it. And if the scriptures say it, then, then it is true. And fortunately, uh, fortunately, we do have a lot of good and godly women that we interact with. We see um, posting on Twitter who would very excitedly and passionately defend this truth as well. But that's where it starts. It starts uh, from the very beginning before culture has a chance to set in because a lot of people will say, well, because of culture, you know, this is how patriarchy arose and this and that. Well, at this point in time, you only have Adam and Eve. There is no culture, that pre-existing culture to speak of that would influence how God is designing these roles. Yeah, that's and and this makes a really good point, brother. And and really this makes the point to fight against God's created order is in fact to fight against none other than God himself. It it is the way it is because God determined it that way. So your opinion doesn't matter, my opinion doesn't matter, you know, the the feminist shouting from the rooftop, her opinion does doesn't matter. What matters is that this is how God designed mankind. Um, and so, to come against that is, is to effectively shake your fist at God and say, you messed up, right? Um, which we should be terrified to, to even consider that we do something like that. Um, and so, yeah, those are great points. And, and we'll, we'll get further down the line because God didn't just stop there, right? He also gave other parameters, uh, other roles to male and female. They're not the same. I mean, just for instance, uh, well, at least I would say this up until this last couple of years, but no matter how bad a man wants to have a baby, he just can't. <laughs> right? Right. It, it doesn't matter whether you want it or not. Nobody cares. You just can't do it, and you can't do it because God made it that way. Um, well, actually, men still can't, uh, although confused women can have children still. And uh, yeah, so, it, you know, God gave us different roles. There are things that we can't do where our bodies are built differently, right? This is one of the, the big issues, hurdles that no one can get around, even in our modern society. Um, you go and get medical treatment. If you are a confused woman who thinks she's a man, the doctor's still going to treat you as a biological woman because mm -hmm. you can't manipulate, change, or lie about biology. There are differences. Um, yeah, and people and, and people in the medical industry, they understand this um, better than most other people, um, that this idea that you can identify 
by your own gender. Gender makes no sense when you have to go into the hospital and receive treatment for something because treatment for a male is not the same as treatment for a female. And in this day and age where social media might ban you for saying that men cannot have children, which uh, until now has never been questioned. I think that has always been understood to, to be the truth. Uh, but this is the postmodern times where we are redefining words and we are redefining words really in rebellion against God because yeah. people make it into how I feel and, and what I believe. But when we go back to the scriptures, it has nothing to do with how you feel. It's how God made you. And if we understand that God is, he is a perfect God, he is an omniscient God, he knows all things. We just talked about that last week. Then we affirm that God created us exactly how he um, how he had designed to create each and every one of us, and he has a specific purpose for us. So we are rebelling against his creation. We're rebelling against what he said was good. Yeah, absolutely. And brother, Ed, I mean, that was so good. We should just repeat it. Men cannot have children. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are two genders, and those genders match your biology at birth. You know, a male, a man, a female, a woman, and that's it. We don't get to pick, choose, decide, change. And if you do decide to change, then what you have is a mental illness. Um, it, it, or in our day, you, who knows? It could just be virtue signaling, but it doesn't work that way because God gets to define genders. God gets to define roles. Um, and, and what's more interesting is that there is such a beauty and a peace and a fulfillment of life when you embrace what God has given us as those boundaries and as those roles that you can't find any other place, which is why you will never really find a feminist who isn't, you know, an angry person in turmoil inside because they're rebelling against the only, um, role that would ultimately bring them peace and joy because that's what God made them. Yeah, that, that is a great point. I mean, the irony is that feminists often portray themselves as being liberators, that they're trying to liberate women to be um, free in a way that they couldn't be free before. But the ultimate liberation um, is really to be saved by God, to know God, and to recognize what His purpose and design for us was so that we can live it out freely. Uh, and so the ultimate liberation is to do, thing, uh, do things according to God's way. And just to add on top of that, when you were emphasizing that men cannot have children. When we go back to the creation account too, I didn't read verse 28, but verse 28 talked about how they were to fill and multiply. They were to procreate, right? So, man and woman were created for the for the purpose of multiplication. And so, the marriage ends up getting established at the end of Genesis 2, 24. Um, for this reason, man shall leave his, his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is how procreation would happen. This is actually the boundaries of sexual activity as well, would be within that marriage covenant. But it all it's all foundational. It's all founded upon the foundational ideas that Man is man, woman is woman, exactly how God has created them. And we are given very distinct roles, which we should embrace. Yeah. And marriage is defined as one man and one woman. And if it's anything else, it's not marriage. It's just sin. You know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And recently, and I'm probably going to share this uh, soon, but I gave a message um, addressing the whole homosexuality, LGBTQ kind of movement. And really, if you understand just these first two chapters of Genesis, it takes care of everything. Because marriage, the marriage covenant was man and woman. We see that at the end of chapter two, it's for the purpose of procreation. And, and so marriage was instituted by God. Sometimes people get angry at Christians like, well, why won't you just allow marriage to be something that's for a man and a man or a woman and a woman? Because marriage is not a cultural thing. It's not something yeah. that society created. It is something that was ordained by God. You you, you want a man to live with a man. Look, I'm not going to get in the way of that. Just don't call it um, by the covenant that God created. And so when we understand that, and by the way, all of these deviations, uh, when we talk about homosexuality, LGBTQ, and, and even what happens with abortion, all of this happens with um, sexual activity that is not ordained by God. And so, if you understand what is ordained by God in terms of sexual activity, it takes care of everything because it only happens within a marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is only man and woman. And the implication is that it's the woman who gives birth and not the man. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff, brother. And by the way, just in case someone's like, well, how does LGBTQ fit into a discussion about feminism? Well, actually, um, one of those subcategories of feminism, radical feminism, um, is often perpetuated by lesbians because um, that view of feminism takes the view that any perceived oppression towards women is the greatest and most significant oppression. And that includes the freedom to engage in any kind of sexual perversion. Um, and, and so, again, it's amazing how all of these different things really kind of come together and, and intersect the Marxism, you know, the cultural Marxism, the LGBTQ. You will find feminism intertwined with every perverse and wicked movement today because ultimately they're all fighting against God's created order in some way or another. Um, now, just a little bit of history for guys out there who aren't familiar at all. It typically divide feminism up into three waves kind of feels a bit like uh, some of the charismatic movement, but you have the first wave in the 19th century, um, which was predominantly centered around the right to vote um, in women's rights in, in that way. And, and I must say that a lot more of what was being fought for during that first wave I actually agree it was real issues uh, and and the results were good. Um, it, there were a lot of other things that kind of crept in. The second wave was really kind of between the 1960s and the late 70s, early 80s, depending on you know what source you look at. But these were issues of perceived equality and discrimination. Now, this is really interesting. This is where it started to get really political. So the slogan for this kind of wave became the personal is political. That was the slogan. And it viewed women's cultural experiences and political inequalities or perceived to be linked and inseparable. So this is when you see uh, women really getting involved in politics and bringing feminism in there. And then the third wave, you know, which is what we are in now and it's kind of morphed, would be kind of from the 1990s or maybe late 80s. Um, which sort of started historically to combat what was lacking in the second wave. So they challenged the original definitions of femininity in this wave. They also argued that, you know, it, you'll see here's where 
uh, critical race theory actually crept in big time in the feminist movement because in the 90s, even their own movement started to emphasize the or, or started to combat an overemphasis in feminism um, towards the experiences of white women. So feminism said, well, actually, no, no, we're talking too much about white women. We need to talk about, you know, color, people of color, uh, feministic. Because remember, feminism is all about your experience as, as a woman. And so we saw this division in critical race theory really creeping in into the 90s. Um, in this third wave and the third wave also, I mean, it introduced intersectionality, it introduced ethnicity, it introduced gender and religion um, and nationality, all as significant factors when speaking about feminism. So the 1990s boom, you have cultural Marxist feminism. Yeah. And when you mention intersectionality, um, it's really just uh, someone who meets uh, more than one of those oppression groups. Um, so critical race theory talks about race, but there's also critical feminist theory. There's critical yep. queer theory. You can basically take the foundational beliefs of critical theory and apply it to any group whom you want to establish as being oppressed. And the worst thing that you can be is a straight white male um, in this society because they see you as being an oppressor across all kinds of different dimensions. Um, but yeah, the intersectionality is really the intersection of these various oppression groups. And we saw it even this past year year when you know we know that Joe Biden uh, when he was running for the presidency um, there was uh, he took a long time before he we we knew who the vice president candidate would be along his side but it was interesting even before Kamala Harris uh, was named um, everyone knew that it was going to be a woman and it was going to be a woman um, of black skin color not necessarily African American because she's not African American um, but we knew that going in because intersectionality was basically playing a role in saying that this yeah. is what it needs to be. It needs to be someone who's in at least a couple of these different oppression groups. And Pete Buttigieg, who was homosexual but uh, self-proclaimed Christian, but I, I would um, I would doubt that uh, profession. Um, he wasn't intersectional enough um, because he was a white male, and really the only oppression category he could claim was uh, was that he was homosexual. Of course, the irony in that is Joe Biden is an old, white, cisgendered male. Yep. But it, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and so from the 1990s, you have this merging of a whole wave of feminism with cultural Marxism. And now they're inseparable. I mean, today, um, I actually had someone comment on one of my Twitter posts earlier that said, well, I'm a feminist, but I'm not angry, you know, against men. And I don't, I don't have this in this, that perspective. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of spoke to that at the beginning, but you, you if that's not you, uh, you probably wouldn't actually fit in what we would consider the feminist movement today, right? You'd be on the outskirts. And um, it, yeah, because feminism today is inseparably linked to cultural Marxism. And in fact, you know, what our society now, um, at least in that area, is, is saying the most oppressed, you know, it would be, you know, the dark skin, um, female and LGBTQ you know, person. Um, and, and that is exactly how the new wave feminism, this third wave would define the most oppressed uh, female would be a black or dark skinned female who identified as lesbian or trans. She would be 
the most authoritative feminist that you could find because her experience is so different than everyone else's. And, and so, it, I, you know, I think you can you, you sort of get the picture here that it, it's exactly just social justice in the feminine realm. You can't separate it now from critical race theory and intersectionality. It's just gotten everywhere. Um, and, and so if you recognize critical race theory and intersectionality as being antithetical to Christianity, then you would have to instantly understand that the feminists of today are also antithetical outside of anything else that we can show or prove. Um, I, I want to read a couple of quotes just to give some people some background of the mentality um, that the feminist movement has, and, and they're, they're pretty atrocious. So, The Feminist Manifesto and 15 Suggestions was a book written by Chimamanda uh, in 2017, I, I believe, uh, African lady, if I'm not mistaken. But let, let me just read a couple quotes from, from the book, and, and just to help us understand, this is kind of the mentality behind feminism today. This is why we're so adamant about fighting against this mentality. So she says, quote, teach her, and that's is a, a young lady, teach her that if you criticize X, whatever X is, in women, but then you do not criticize X the same in men, then you don't have a problem with X, whatever it is, you actually have a problem with women. You see how deceptive that is? Yeah. So if you say homosexuality is wrong in women, but in the same sentence, you don't say that it's also wrong in men, then, then you're misogynist, right? Yeah, and in, in many ways, this, once again, um, uh, apart from the biblical worldview, it only makes sense apart from the biblical worldview. When you go back to the biblical worldview and recognize that God created men and women, women to be distinct, um, then you realize that you can't just compare them on equal footing like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, this is one of the traps that we even see in the social justice stuff today, right? Um, I mean, Twitter gives you, what, 140 characters or something like that? I mean, people 280, actually. Two, 280. Okay, 280. Right. People expect you to be able to write a book and to include, you know, every possible yeah. exception um, that you can get in there. But it's one of the arguments. But, but the point of sharing that quote is just to show the very deceptive intentions behind the, the feministic view. Let me read another one for you. Uh, okay, again, this is a, a lady writing how to, how to raise and what to teach your young girls. So she says, and I quote, teach her that the idea of gender roles is absolute nonsense. Do not ever tell her that she should or should not do something because she is a girl. Because you are a girl is never reason for anything ever. Okay, we'll apply that to having children. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know, and, and we see that in sports, right? Yep. Well, what's ironic is that um, the feminist movement would actually want to protect uh, the woman's right to just compete against other women and not men. And this is where we're going to see some of the cannibalism happen amongst the left, because if your worldview is not internally consistent, it's going to create some of these clashes where you have now men being able to identify themselves as women and then be able to beat women very easily in the field of competition. We, I saw um, a headline just, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, where a um, young boys team, 15 years and under, uh, beat the national uh, women's soccer team. 
And, you know, that just goes to show you the, the difference uh, between how God has created men to be physically stronger, to be faster, to be more athletic. And yeah. even at the age of 15, they're already superior to your best women that you can field in the nation together. Um, and so we see those very clear examples, those, those very clear proofs that God did not create both genders equally. And so to make those kinds of statements that they are equal is to ignore the very reality that we see right in front of us. You know, that, look, if we allow transgender people, men who identify as women to go ahead and compete against women, we might as well just not have a women's division at all or call it a men's division and a co-ed division, right? Um, because uh, we know that even Serena Williams, who um, quite possibly the greatest female tennis player ever, couldn't even beat the average male player. And she even admitted that herself, that she would get absolutely destroyed um, because there is a huge difference. And so what we see physically being manifested is true in more than just a physical sense. God has created them in different ways. And on the women's side, one of the one of the greatest <clears throat> and most obvious uh, ways is that women can have birth and men cannot. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, so we've kind of hit on a couple of these categories. I, I, let me let me go back and in like thirty seconds define each of those categories of feminism. Um, you know, liberal feminism. I think the only oldest and earliest, and that's sort of so far gone today. We don't have as much of that. But uh, liberal feminism was basically concerned for equal rights. Uh, they did add some things like childcare provisions, et cetera. We see some of that. Um, but it was probably the least devious of what we have now. Um, after that, we've got the Marxist feminism, which was concerned, as you would imagine, with economic position of women. Um, it assumed uh, women, it, it classified women as a total oppressed group. You know, it combined with Marxism um, to, to make it effective. And that's really where it gained traction. Uh, let's see, romantic feminism kind of classifies life into male and female approaches. And, and this is the one we're going to get into next. And so they would say things like science and math would be a male approach to life, while a relationship with the earth and with nature would be a female approach. So think of like your uh, Wiccans, your paganists, you know, meditating on the earth, that kind of thing. This would be your romantic feminist. And then you have your radical feminist, which would be often head, headed up by your LGBTQ women and things like that, who basically they hate everybody except the most oppressed of what they would call feminist group, right? Um, so your dark skin LGBTQ woman would, would be the most oppressed and anyone outside of that category are just not as important. That would be kind of your radical feminism. And then, and then we'll kind of end, I think, with this, this newer idea of quote unquote Christian feminism, uh, which is what we see a lot of in the church today, the idea of, well, women can be pastors, women can be elders, they have just as much of a voice as men. Uh, we'll, if we get time, we'll kind of touch on Amy Bird's book and some other guys like that. So those are sort of the, the groups that we mentioned, just a, a brief overview. Um, but I mean, it in, in reality, I think most of what we see tonight today now is such a conglomeration of all of these and the central tenet it 
through it all is, you know, defying God's created order. I mean, that's what we see. It's all kind of merged with, you know, critical race theory and intersectionality now. You won't find much, at least that even have a voice, because if you aren't in agreement with that, they don't give you a voice anymore. Um, and so that's kind of what we deal with, you know, today in, in terms of yeah, feminist yeah, movement. The- you know, the irony there, and I've heard this a lot, we see this on Twitter a lot, especially those within the Christian circles who um, are egalitarian, they will say that complementarianism basically robs the woman of her voice, that she doesn't have a voice. And I've often said that's that's a straw man. Um, we're, we're not yeah. taking away her voice. And the comeback is, uh, yeah, but the man has the ultimate uh, final say. Uh, well, practically speaking, I can tell you that in my marriage with my wife, um, I don't assert authority in the final decision very often. In fact, I do it hardly at all. It's only when I believe that um, spiritually it's it's a spiritual matter of obedience or disobedience um, that I'll do that. But um, let me just say this as well, that just because, let's just say, for instance, you have a husband who feels more convicted to have the final say on everything, even if that is the case, it doesn't mean that the woman is robbed of her voice. I mean, when we think about, I think about corporate America, when people come together for meetings, we understand that there needs to be someone in that meeting who's the final decision maker. Everyone understands that. In fact, if a meeting drags on too long, that's what everyone starts asking. Who has the, who has the authority to make this decision? Now, it doesn't mean that everyone else's voice is silenced. The whole point of having people come together is so that they have a voice, but there still needs to be an ultimate decision maker. So this is really just a recognition of God's order that God has in order. But what we see from those who attack it is they start to mischaracterize. They start to create their own straw mans, their false mischaracter, their false characterizations of what it is that we believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, let's just spend the rest of our time in in kind of this modern day Christian feminism, because we look, we understand that the world are they're going to adopt world systems that are completely against the truth of God. We understand that. We know that they are our mission field. They're not our enemies, although we do need to safeguard the church against bringing that stuff in. Um, but we have, because of the worldliness that's crept in kind of unnoticed into the church at some stage, we have a huge segment of, of, Christians who are Christian feminists. You know, we've interacted with them a little bit on various social medias. They've taken over entire um, uh, they've taken over entire denominations, right? You think of the PCUSA um, who went with the LGBTQ stuff and now they're, you know, they went to ordaining female pastors. And now, I mean, in my mind, they just kind of do whatever they want to do and they're apostate. So let them, but um, you know, so we deal with that now. So brother, why can't women be pastors? Well, I mean, it's very clear. I mean, the scriptures tell us that women are not to have authority or to teach another. We we see that very clearly. I think it's First Timothy two twelve, right? Yeah. And we also see First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter fourteen, where Paul talks about how women are to be silent, um, and if they have questions, to ask their husbands um, later at at another time. And in in that case, addressing women who were probably being. Um, interruptive. They were speaking out uh, rather than allowing those who are truly gifted and and men to be able to speak to the congregation. But yeah, the scriptures are very clear. And the way that these quote-unquote Christian feminists get around it is they start to question the inerrancy of scripture. They start to question yeah. uh, 
people like Paul. And for instance, and, and I remember seeing this, uh, I think at this point is about almost two years ago when we saw that Beth Moore for the first time revealed on Twitter that she was going to be preaching on Sunday to a mixed congregation. And uh, sometime before or after that, she was in a dialogue, I think with, I want to say it was either Burke Parsons or Denny Burke, I can't remember which one, but he she had mentioned something about how we have not embraced the tension between what Jesus Christ taught and what Paul taught. And in typical fashion, she wasn't very direct in what she was suggesting, but implied in that is that there may be a disagreement there and that um, Jesus never said these things, so we shouldn't take it too seriously when Paul says it. Or when Paul says it, it must have been something that's very culturally driven. But in one of those cases, Paul talks about how the reason why he has he specifies these roles is, and he goes back to the garden. He goes, yeah. Adam was created first and then Eve. He refers to a time in which culture could not be the factor yeah. in all of this takes so that out of his own culture yeah absolutely and and the script so the scriptures are very clear and, and i think what we see also and you just noted it um, a lot of these denominations really being taken over um, by the acceptance of these um, uh, external ideologies ideologies and it's the fact that that when you have a woman who becomes a female pastor or an elder of a church um, in every situation that I have seen, it leads to greater and greater apostasy. It leads to, um, to, to more rejection of biblical truth. And the reason why that is because they're already starting from an unbiblical point. They're starting from a point where they say that a woman can be in a position that the scriptures specifically say that she can't. And then once you do that, now you're, you're, you're falling down that slippery slope and pretty soon you're affirming a lot of other unbiblical things as well. So we've seen this a lot of um, people even within um, christian circles who call themselves christian when they embrace female pastors you will find that that's not the only unbiblical position that they take yeah and you know you you've made this statement multiple times i've made it a lot of us have made it it it, it is almost impossible to be very wrong in one important theological era and it stay in that 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 category, yeah, right? Yeah, a broken theology is rarely broken in just one place. And and exactly. just as an example, and this is not relating to women, but Raphael Warnock, right? I mean, we oh, yeah. know that, mm-hmm. you know, he affirms black liberation theology, which is a false gospel. And we'll talk more about that when we get to critical theory. But he affirms a false gospel. And then just the other day, he tweeted that um, everyone has the power to save themselves, which means that you don't, Christ is not necessarily the way to salvation. Yeah. And so that was an example of someone who had the wrong gospel and then goes to confirm it by saying that you can be saved whether you're Christian or not. Yeah, that's one of the most blatant errors I've seen in, in a while that like it, it, you're just average Christian, even brand new should know better than that. Right. Um, a- absolutely. And and so, you know what, brother, I actually want to read this passage that you brought up from First Timothy. Uh, let me let me just read the whole thing nine to 15. And let's talk about that a little bit because it's important. Right. Um, oftentimes the argument from Christian feminists is, well, you know, God, uh, God used females to do this in Scripture or to do that. You hear arguments about female apostles, which is absolutely wrong. Um, but let me just read this and and discover what the word of God actually says. And you rightly said uh, you can't separate the teachings of Christ and the teachings of Paul. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired every writer of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Yes. So the Holy Spirit is the author. So unless you were insinuating that the Holy Spirit was fighting against himself, which would be an insane idea, um, you, you just can't even go to that place. But it says this, and I'll start from verse nine. Likewise, 
I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. And we understand he's talking about being showy, right? But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Okay, let's just stop right there. If you're a woman and you're making a claim to godliness, this ought to be a pattern displayed in your life, right? Good works, um, as is proper. He goes, so let me go on. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So here he's removing it from his own context, taking it back to creation. So that eliminates any, well, it was just a contextual cultural issue. Uh, 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Yeah, those are those are great verses. And to that point, once again, a lot of people will argue Greek uh, culture and, and uh, you know, Paul operating within the confines of what the culture was. But yeah, this explanation transcends culture. Um, because he goes all the way back to the very beginning in which culture could never be the excuse. And also, verse 14, he said, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. In other words, Adam knew what was going on. Eve actually thought that what she was doing was somehow the right thing, even though it was against what God had said. And so this is also, I, I would point to this as another reason why there needs to be male headship, not only within the family in a spiritual sense, but also within the church. Yeah. Uh, because men are designed to be defenders. They're designed to be protectors. That's how we are wired. Um, women, on the other hand, and <clears throat> you, had, you had kind of mentioned this, uh, but women um, are very relationship-driven. They're very... Um, they're, they're, you know, they tend to be more emotional than men. I think that's generally true, not true with every single couple, but I think that's generally true. And I can tell you that in my relationship with my wife, I often say if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't have a whole lot of friends um, because she's the relationship builder. I mean, she's the one that she does a great job of establishing relationships and setting up uh, times to get together and, and uh, making those kinds of connections. Um, so, I, you know, in terms of even our ministry within the church, I couldn't do what I do yeah. without my wife operating the way she operates. Um, but on the same token, she'd be the first to say that she can't go up behind of a podium and, and preach for an hour or be able to apply the scriptures uh, against what the cultural attacks are or to figure out what are the best ways to be able to edify the, the flock uh, theologically. So there are very specific roles and, you know, in, in, um, was it first Peter chapter three, uh, verse seven, that's when, uh, Peter refers to the man as the stronger vessel or the woman mm -hmm. as the weaker vessel. And I do believe that in a spiritual sense, uh, women are more prone to uh, falling victim um, to the schemes of Satan, which is why men must be there yeah. to protect it. And if you don't believe me, just look at any, every, any and every church that has been under woman headship for any period of time, and you will see that they have gone off um, the narrow path on several issues, not just one. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we just we have to recognize that. And of course, lots of feminists would say, well, but Adam sinned, too. And we would agree. Adam absolutely sinned. Well, and and perhaps even in the worst way, because it was his duty right, to right. guard and protect his wife and truth. And he failed to do that. And not only did he fail to do that, but he chose knowingly not to do that. Right. And so. I don't know anyone that would that makes Adam out to be in in the right or somehow 
you know, give him a, a pass on that. No, absolutely not. Um, Adam, Adam knew it was wrong and he did nothing. And so, you know, he sinned by omission. He sinned by commission. Um, and, and so we, we understand that. But Eve was deceived, right? right. Um, she, she didn't even recognize uh, what, what was going on in that. And, and so it's an important passage. And uh, well, let's move on a little bit because I want to get into, um, well, I mean, is there anything women can do? Um, I think one of the saddest things for me in which I will agree in this one area with a lot of quote unquote Christian feminists that the ministry of women in the church is severely lacking. Uh, I, I believe that. I think um, that the ministry that God has given women in the church, it is a wonderful, necessary um, ministry that produces or is meant to produce so much life and love and joy in the church that without that, the church is in, indeed infect, uh, affected in a negative way. And, and so let's get to that. We go to, let's see, where is it? In Titus, I think. Uh, let me just pull that up here. Uh, yeah, Titus 2, 3 through 5. Um, if you want to know one of the ministries primary of women in the church, listen to this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Well, let me just stop there. Um, reverence is not something you see in a lot of feminists. Just take note of that, right? Their behavior is already contrary to Scripture. Uh, I'll, I'll go on. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Here's a teaching ministry. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God, very important, will not be dishonored. Man, what a passage. What a ministry. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when we talk about older women, the qualification is not merely someone who's older in age, but someone who is spiritually mature, someone who's been in the church for a while. And I know that coming from Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is, and we've got all kinds of pastors, pastors' wives and all that, I know my wife has been greatly blessed by the pastors' wives and the elder wives who are there um, because they have been a model to other women on how to live out biblical womanhood. And so I, I think it's a great ministry. I agree with you. Um, there are some who believes that women should only be taught by men. So there are some who will take this and say, well, this is, this is only those who are elderly women. So if they're not elderly, but perhaps mature in the faith, but not elderly, they shouldn't do this. Well, <clears throat> we can talk about that um, another time. But I do believe in discipleship between woman to woman um, and man to man mm -hmm. and woman to woman, because in, especially in our culture and really in any culture, there's the challenge of um, how does a woman be able to, how can she subject herself to her husband and still glorify God mm -hmm. with all the challenges that might be there, especially knowing that her husband uh, is a sinner just as she is. He's going to make decisions that are not great. And I often say in counseling, by the way, I say, look, you know, a lot of times the decisions that you make is not really an issue of sin. I, if it is, then you need to call it out and say, look, this is what the Bible says. But a lot of times the decisions that couples fight over, and this is the vast majority of the time, it's not about what is biblically sinful or not. Uh, and what I often tell the women, and I really tell them both, but this is specifically for the woman, look, it is better for you two to be united, even if you're going in a way that may not be the better way. 
than it is to continue arguing even if you think you have the better way. So unity is really what's uh, most important in that. But you're right. In terms of women's ministries, for a woman who's more mature in the faith to be able to disciple other women and be able to show her this is how we live out um, biblical womanhood, it's been an invaluable blessing to my wife. And, and now she's uh, she looks for every opportunity she can to help pay that forward with other women in our church today. And just another example, we have meal ministries. So we've got a number of elderly people um, going through operations, having difficulties, and the women rallied together and put together a meal ministry, a meals ministry where different women will cook on different nights for different people that are in need. And they'll go and deliver the food and make sure that, uh, you know, during that time where, you know, people are struggling with whatever they're struggling with, they don't have to worry about what to cook. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people saying, wow, this has been such a blessing because you know it's home cooked meals it's it's wonderful food and it also shows the heart of fellow servants who are willing to be able to yeah. meet the needs of others so yeah the the idea that well what are women to do um, implies that the only thing that there is to do is is simply to teach men and women and that is uh, such an oversimplification because the church is much more than just teaching the church is about serving i mean yeah. going back to yeah. ephesians 4 11 through 13 all these gifted men were given to the church for the sake of um, equipping the saints uh, for the work of service to one another. And it's not just equipping so that you can teach, it's equipping that you can serve and meet each other's needs. And women who do that uh, provide a tremendous service. And in many ways, they fill voids that men cannot fill themselves because of their other responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely, brother. And I, I mean, I liked your point that, you know, predominantly older women here, it, it makes a point of the character, not necessarily the age. We understand that for um, elders, right? Um, men who are to be in the pulpit, it's not about age necessarily, but do they meet those character qualifications with the addition of being able to teach? And I, I just, you know, just imagine, here's the reality. If a woman were to take the word of God seriously and apply herself to just this, there would be no room to want or desire positions that God hasn't called you to fill. There just wouldn't be, right? I mean, I, I think this is one of the areas where I would say I, I'm saddened that I don't see um, as many older or mature women bringing younger or, or less mature women under their wings to teach them how to love their husbands, how to love their children, what being sensible looks like, what being pure looks like, how to work in the home. Um, if, the, if women engaged in this ministry, I mean, the church would be so much richer. Uh, my wife and I talk about this often. She grew up as a missionary kid, was born and raised in Guatemala. Um, wonderful, godly parents who did an excellent job, you know, training their children. But the church is there there was never once, you know, a mature woman who came alongside the younger women there. Never, um, and you know, her 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 parents were involved. Her dad was a Bible translator, and so he spent a great deal of his time translating the New Testament. And so she grew up without that at all, because there weren't some women that took this seriously. And and so now I hear these you know, uh, feminist women who are upset that they can't preach in the pulpit, and yet they're neglecting all of the young women that maybe they could be helping into godliness. That doesn't really sound like a servant attitude, does it? It sounds yeah, like yeah. they're grasping at a position of a power at the expense of the young women who need them otherwise. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's that's a really great point. And um, obviously, I, I would say also that the woman who is um, coveting that uh, pulpit position to to be that preacher or the leader um, in a human sense um, uh, in the church to be that shepherd are probably not the kind of women you want shepherding other women anyway, which is another problem. Absolutely, um, with this feminist yeah. uh, movement. But yeah, there there are so many you know, and there are more problems than um, just the um, the elderly women or the more mature women and and their lack of commitment to the task, but also that uh, younger women don't even think that they need this. You know, there's a lot of younger women within the church. That's a good that, point um, too. Think, yeah. think that they have arrived. And, and this is, uh, this is everyone, right? So, I mean, this is not just limited to women, but also there's a lot of younger men or less mature men who don't realize that how much they would benefit from discipleship and try to do it um, all on their own. And, and I would add this too. We are living in an age where um, the number of attendees in church service, um, we have practically, and I think the last number I saw was between two-thirds to three-fourths of church attendees tend to be women. And the men who are there don't step up. Um, yeah. They are content uh, with just kind of going with the flow and enjoying the things of this world, enjoying their sports, and there's nothing wrong with sports. Uh, but um, anything in this world that you make more important than your service to God becomes an idol. And so we also live in an age where men are more than happy to concede or to um, to abdicate uh, the roles of spiritual leadership yeah. to women. So men are as much to blame in all this as, as really the, the women are. But all of this to say that both men and women, older and younger, they're all complicit um, in this issue of not following what God has told us. And, and this is an issue that goes all the way back to Old Testament Israel. Israel was told many times that you were to teach the next generation these things, and that's where they failed. But Second Timothy 2, 2, um, you know that verse, I know that verse. When Paul talks to Timothy, he tells him, said, look, instruct others so that they may be able to instruct others. And, yeah. and right in that one verse, we see four generations of people being mentioned, and the idea that we are to continually disciple those um, who are younger than us so that they can carry forward um, what godly um, teaching and, and uh, behavior is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a good point, uh, brother. We are in this mess because men have failed to be men. Uh, I mean, you know, yep. um, and and it, men don't get a pass. I'm pretty hard on the men, you know, put your big boy pants on and be the spiritual leader in your home, be a spiritual leader, serve in your church. Um, you know, pastors too, lots of pastors get lazy and they don't want to do the hard work of looking for, um, you know, and training up guys in the church. And uh, I, it, you know, I just don't give guys a pass. That's you come into the church and, you know, you you raise men up. Um, and then also, you know, we ought to be looking for uh, and at least noticing the women who really do fit these behavior patterns and talking to their husbands and, t and with them together and encouraging them, you know, to take on. Um, you know, these, these ministries that God has given, because it, I mean, it just imagine a church where, you know, the, the men are stepping up in their leadership roles, their spiritual roles, and where their wives and other godly women are also doing likewise. And so, you've got the younger women who are being trained. And, and it's important, too, that this is geared towards um, developing younger women of character, right? I mean, this is the primary context. 
um, how to be sensible, how to be pure. I mean, nothing about our culture teaches women to be sensible or pure anymore. It's quite the opposite, right? right. The, the more edgy you can be, the more sassy you can be, the, the more outrageous you can be, the better as a woman. Um, but if that's your character, I'm just going to tell you that no young man that I counsel is going to be counseled to go near a woman with a 10-foot pole that's like that. Um, there are serious issues when it comes to those kind of character issues. Um, yeah. Well, I, I want to move on to, we've talked a little bit about just feminism in general, how it is truly uh, fights against God's created order. We talked a little bit about here in Titus. Really, I, I think this is an absent ministry for women in the church. Mm. Um, feminism. See, this, well, this ministry here is, is one of femininity, this is biblical womanhood right here, yeah. right? And because feminist, feminism hates the biblical woman, they totally skip this and go straight towards the role of men, right? Um, but l- lest anyone accuse either one of us or of being misogynist or looking down on women, let me just go to the passage of all passages, right? And you know where I'm going, Proverbs 31 and, and I, I'm just going to, it's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read through this and just listen to God's view of the woman, what she does and can do in the home. And we would both wholeheartedly agree with this. Um, the problem is feminism hates the Proverbs 31 woman, and it mm-hmm. twists it to uh, bring about its own ends. So let me just see here. Where should I start? Uh, maybe... Yeah, I'll just start at 10. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes her coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Mm. That's rich. That is rich. And I have heard also many women who despise this because it sets such a high standard. Um, But, you know, part of this, uh, of course, it sets a high standard. I mean, this is like, 
you know, when Ephesians 5 tells us um, husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is an impossibly high standard as well. So we Or be holy that. as he's holy. Yeah, be holy as he is holy. I mean, Peter, exactly. Yeah. So we, we have these targets that we will never fully meet. Um, but I will say this also, that in this day and age where women are expected to be career women, mm-hmm. to, to go and, and get a, um, a degree and many, and many times m- much more than just a bachelor degree, but get an advanced degree, get a good career going and where women are encouraged to wait until they're in their 30s before they have children. You know, part of the reason why this is so difficult to fulfill is exactly because they've been distracted by the noise of the world. Yeah. You know, when I look at my wife, and my wife is one of the hardest working people I know, she used to work as a pharmacist. Uh, but from the time that she stopped working and, and she was forced out for um, physical reasons um, that she developed some various infirmities, but she is a full-time homemaker and she is very, very busy. And I cannot imagine my life life um, if it weren't for her ministry to me. And so this is a great example of how to be a godly woman, you have a lot to do aside from just yeah. teaching. You know, just because we say that the shepherd of the church, the preacher to a mixed congregation should be a man, it doesn't mean that the woman has nothing else to do. No, there's a lot of great roles. And <clears throat> often the um, the caricature is that, oh, you just want her to be barefoot, um, pregnant, and in the kitchen. <laughs> Well, I mean, first of all, women women are blessed with childbearing, right? So they yeah. they are blessed with childbearing, and if you're going to have a large and fruitful family, then yeah, a, a woman part of the blessing of God is to have many children. And so I was just talking about the meals ministry and how that's been a blessing mm-hmm. to people who've been out. Um, that doesn't happen unless you have women who are comfortable in the kitchen, being able to to cook. Um, you know, part of the to- problem part of the problem with that, brother, and, and I'll let you get back to this is that very. Uh, that that very phrase, barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, assumes that pregnancy is a negative thing. Yes. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. So I mean, it, it paints this picture like that's a lesser role, and that is actually truly misogynistic. Because now what you're saying is that it's a lesser role to fulfill what God has actually blessed you to be able to fulfill, and. Yeah. Consequently, what happens um, in our society and even in this capitalist society is that all these career women, they wait until their 30s and sometimes they find that they can't have children or they have to resort to other means to have children and they don't have nearly the kind of family that they could have had if they had started earlier. And so we've get, we get those who are more successful having fewer children, those who are more poor having more children, um, but it, it's basically taking God's design and, and just twisting out of order. But that's, that's a good point. We're taking what God is saying is good and portraying it something as something that is other than good. Yeah. yeah and the pro- what I love about Proverbs 31 is, I mean, first, let, look at the context in which she does all the things she can do. Well, I guess first, just look at the capability because oftentimes that's an issue, right? Well, you know, women are able. Absolutely. I mean, this woman, she's able to trade in the market. She buys and sells land. Um, there, there isn't anything in this picture that she can't do in terms of ability. But then the context of that, is all centered around her providing for her family, right? Yeah. She does those things in order to provide for her family, um, not to build a multi-million dollar empire, not to go work for some other guy's family. And I'm not necessarily saying working outside of the home is sinful or bad. Sometimes it's necessary. But her focus was on two things, the care of her family and and serving out of a love for God. Um, and it, you know, if you diminish those things, I, I, th- yeah, then you're the misogynist, right? Yeah. I mean, how how could you look at 
Proverbs 31, uh, 31 and think that God didn't give abundantly rich roles to both men and women. Um, and, and so we, we want to embrace those things. And let me t- just tell you, a woman who takes Titus 2 serious, a woman who takes Proverbs 31 serious, that woman will be loved by her family, her children, her husband, the church. She will be fulfilled um, there, there won't be anything that lacks in her life in, in the spiritual sense. Now, we know none of us can do all these things perfectly. We, we talked about that. But, but if that's, that is the pursuit and the heart of a woman, then, I mean, man, th- th- there is such incredible richness here. And so, why can't women be pastors then? Well, because God said you can't. Just get over it. If you really love God and, and you love the Bible, then go to the places where God has given incredible ministry and you know kill that pride because that's really where it, what it is uh humble yourself and and you know try to fulfill these things and i know i say that very hardly guys step up i mean you know i'm tired of seeing guys with no backbones who let their wife run all over them and do things in the church and pastors we can get off on a rant but anyway um yeah, guys need to step up and be men, right? Put your big boy pants on. This is adulthood. Um, but but the beauty of the ministries that God has given women, I, I mean, it's incredible. It, it blows my mind. And so no one would see, I mean, a, a, if, if a feminist were to look at a Proverbs 31 woman, she would be seething with jealousy because she would have everything that the feminists want to have, but are working towards destroying. It's, it's ironic, really. Yeah, and, and this goes, once again, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden because they were allowed to eat from any tree of the garden, um, but the woman, uh, with thanks to the serpent, uh, was caused to um, covet the one thing that she couldn't have. And that's mm. often uh, very much what's happening today with a lot of women that covet that position behind the pulpit, and they ignore all the good um, that God has already called them to do. And you make a good point. I mean, when it comes to strength and ability and, and vitality, this Proverbs 31 woman is a physically capable woman. But what we don't see here is that we're sending her into the front lines to fight a war, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. or to to um, to fight battles. Um, that's where men are called. And I know this, even though I don't have children, many uh, of my close friends, uh, good and godly men who um, are the heads of their families, um, they once in a while will go ahead and swap positions just to give relief to their wife. And every single time they come back and they are amazed at how much their wife handles around the house. So the woman is given a kind of strength and vitality to handle the kind of tasks around the house that men are not very well built for. And on the other hand, men are created, you know, you know, and the joke is that women can multitask and men are very tunnel vision. I mean, that's very much true mm-hmm. for me, but men, because they are tunnel vision, they're really designed to, uh, to to do things that God has called them to do that's about defending and protecting and in this case preaching uh, to the to, to the sheep and and edifying the sheep in that way men are created in certain ways that when they ignore that then they lose out on the blessing of fulfilling God's role yeah. and so what you have is you've got people that are in positions that God hasn't blessed them to be in and nothing works as well as it did before and all in the name of equality when it really is ultimately hatred for God's design. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better, brother. I, you know, I know I couldn't do what I do without the help of my wife. And, you know, just like you said, I actually, I often tell people our marriage is a picture of a Christmas cactus. 
you know, I'm the thorns that keep all the stuff away from the really pretty <laughs> flower, which is my wife. Um, it, you know, and so, uh, but it's true. You know, my, my wife is a homemaker. We do not, we also don't have children. And um, I, let me tell you, she, she works and she's busy. And I mean, I couldn't juggle the things that I try to juggle. Um, it, you know, try being in a new place, planning a church and, doing a podcast and all the other things we do. Uh, I'm yep. working on a new book and I just could not keep up if it weren't for the support of my wife. Um, and, and so I definitely view her as a Proverbs 31 woman. And you know what? She has no desire to be in the pulpit. Um, she's not gifted in that area. And yet she most certainly is gifted to be able to bring other women alongside her. Yes. And and to give godly input and and those sorts of things to teach and train in character, um, and and that's the way it should be, and so yeah, so I mean this is why feminism is so insidious and destructive because ultimately feminists have to destroy the godly woman to pursue the feminist agenda, right? You have to attack the godly woman, tear her down. Um, you, you have to do things like throw the beauty of being able to child rear under the bus. You know, you have to attack character, right? Because the character feminism promotes is just totally antithetical to being sensible, to being kind, to being gentle. And you'll see this, right? I mean, show me a feminist that you would, you, you, that you would say their character exhibits those things and you won't do it. Um, you just won't do it. And, and so, and ultimately they fight against God. Um, and, and this is, I think we kind of end on, on this point, who our real enemy is, right? Our real enemy isn't the feminist. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of, you know, dear sisters in the body of Christ who are being swept up in some of this, right? False teaching and in, in the, in these things. And, you know, we've got to combat that and our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? We understand that. Um, and the way we fight that is we proclaim truth, we teach the truth, we love people in truth, we speak up in truth uh, and in love. And yeah, we've got to do this because this is going to be an ongoing battle and feminism will rob women of their God-given beauty and fulfillment and joy, the very things feminists say they want. Amen. And I said earlier that obedience to God produces joy. It produces true contentment. And for women that are getting caught up in this movement, I mean, recognize the bitter fruit that we often see from women that are caught up in this movement. I mean, they're bitter, they're angry, um, they're very rarely able to find any kind of contentment. And so the real freedom uh, in, in God is to recognize that God's plan trumps every other. That if we follow God's plan, if we trust in him, and a lot of this is trust, it's about trust and faith that God's design for us is better no matter how it looks to the culture. So don't worry about what other people think. No, don't worry about what the culture is trying to teach you. Just put your faith into God, into his word, and God will bless you. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to be barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it's just not. And with that, we'll end. Uh, so thank you guys for joining us. We hope this was edifying to you. Um, yeah, feel free to send us an email. You can do that at truthbeknownpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known Podcast. 
is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program, serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.